abundance. We all want more of it. Health, relationships, career, prosperity. To be human is to strive for more. There's ample advice on how to create abundance. We need to have positive thoughts and believe in ourselves. But what happens if positive thinking doesn't come naturally? Are we doomed? I'm Jill McCabe, author, entrepreneur, negative thinker turned optimist, and your host on the Thinking Vitamins podcast. For years, I struggled to believe in myself. And for years, I fell short of my goals and aspirations. Until I learned a nifty bit of neuroscience that taught me how we can all rewire our brains to have more positive thoughts, self-belief, and abundance. That's what I created Thinking Vitamins for. Thinking Vitamins are sticky ideas, mantras, and perspective shifts that retrain your brain to expect good things to happen to you. So I ask you, are you ready to boost your abundance? Let's dive in. On today's episode of the Thinking Vitamins podcast, I will be interviewing Eric Barker about his new book, Plays Well with Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly Wrong. I am really excited about today's interview because relationships are such an important part of abundance. In fact, I don't even think it's possible to be abundant alone. How abundant would it feel to have everything you've ever dreamed of, but not have your family there or friends there or, or significant other there to really share in that with you in an authentic way. And yet so many people struggle to have, you know, the friendships we want, the relationships we want, we, we struggle with them. And so I think the topic of, of how we can have better relationships is one of the most critical conversations that we can be having about abundance. So when an author that I'm a big fan of, Eric Barker, decided to write his new book on relationships, I knew I had to have him on the show. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. How excited am I to start talking to you about this book. This is officially, Eric, the first book that I have ever had that says, Uncorrected Proof Not For Sale. <laughs> I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for talking to me today about your book. Absolutely. You got to tell us. What inspired you to write a book about relationships? Uh, me being terrible at them. Um, basically, uh, really, really scraping the bottom of the barrel of statistical distribution in terms of agreeableness. And, uh, like I always wondered, I kind of, you know, was not like great with people, very introverted, kind of like my social skills seemed to peak in preschool. And then I stumbled around like Mr. Magoo for a few decades. And it was crazy because I had already decided that I was, I was going to write plays well with others, and I was going to go into the social science of relationships. And then, believe it or not, the the book deal closed, and then two weeks later, California, where I live, went into lockdown, and it was pandemic time. And like I said, I was already going to write the book, but all of a sudden, it took on this whole new kind of purpose, and I just became a man on a mission. And I was like, okay, you know, I knew this was going to be a book that I wanted to learn this stuff for me, and I you know, knew other, some other people could use it. I didn't realize that everybody was going to need kind of a defibrillator on their relationships uh, over the next couple of years. So, you know, in, in the worst kind of way, I guess it worked out. It's such an important topic to me, my background going in and doing change leadership in organizations and teaching communication. We can really only be as effective as we are with others. It's funny because I think it's something that we kind of take for granted. Most of us do in a lot of ways. And yet, once you start looking at the research, it's like, you know, there's a UC, Ber UC Berkeley study basically showed that in terms of health and longevity, you know, rela good relationships are second only to genetics. You know, Journal of Socioeconomics 2008 showed that basically, what was it? Having good relationships is the equivalent of making another $131,000 a year. 
but ask your boss for a $131,000 raise and see how well that goes over. I mean, it's like, this is really big, big, impactful stuff. And we spend so much time thinking about improving happiness, you know, improving our health, improving our lives. And usually we take the perspective of what do I need to do? What do I need to get? And as, as Brett Ford, who, who teaches at UC Berkeley, she, she basically said, it's like we're going about it all wrong because so much of health, happiness, fulfillment directly comes from our relationships. If we're thinking about what do I need to do, what do I need to get, we're doing it wrong because we always really need to be focusing on we, on the people around us. You know, we need to take this broader network perspective if, if we're going to live better lives. I loved that about the book. So listeners, Eric has four main topics about uh, the book. One is, can you judge a book by the cover? The next one looks at friendship. The next one looks at love. And uh, yeah, spoiler alert, that's going to be um, <laughs> controversial. And <laughs> and then it, ha it has a warning. It, has, it comes with a warning. I was actually going to send you like an all caps email. And then I thought, we don't know each other that well yet. Maybe you won't laugh. <laughs> and, and then he also, you know, he talks about loneliness, which is... Um, which is huge. I've, already, I've already been sharing some of uh, the insights from your book, Eric, with my clients, because I think they're really powerful. Coming to this idea of friendship and how important friendship is. And you say, it's like, it's like, in terms of our happiness, it's the equivalent of getting you know, 130 something thousand a year. And there's some specific things in there about friendship. You talk, I mean, there's, there's a specific number of friends that is a, uh, I think 10, right? Is 10 like a really, was that, am I remembering correctly? I mean, it, it depends. Most, most Americans have four close relationships, two of which are friends, and friends make us happier than, than any other relationship. Sorry, spouses. Uh, friends make us happier than any other relationship because they're completely voluntary. You know, there's no, there's no contract. There's, there's no blood relation. You know, so friendship is fragile. But that's what keeps it pure, because people are only there if they want to be so. And the truth is, like, what was it? Yeah, I think it was, I think basically, we basically lose friends as we get older, as we all unfortunately know. Teenagers average about nine. And like I said, that generally comes down to two in, a, in adulthood. But people who have more than six, you know, generally report, I think, being about 60% happier. If you have six close friends that you can talk to about, about that, and you know, in the workplace, friends are friends are huge as well. You know, uh, people are people are much happier if they have friends on the job. It's more than happier though. Like apparently, it helps us live longer. It helps us avoid disease. It helps us rebound from disease. So, but you talk about what you want in a friendship, what makes a friendship, and what make doesn't make a friendship because there's this yeah. um, like small talk. Apparently, a lot of talk, yeah. a small talk, is yeah. like two thumbs down <laughs> on the friendship yeah. scale. Right. So, yeah, I mean, basic, basically, it was you know, 2,000 years ago, Aristotle said that to find a friend as another self. And, you know, that is very, like, it's perfect for an Instagram quote. It's, it's really, you know, wonderful. Uh, and it caught on, like, for, like, I looked through a lot of classic literature, and for 2,000 years, you could hear it being mentioned. But, you know, it was only in the past few decades that, like, social science kind of woke up and decided to prove it. And now over 60 studies show that, that that's accurate. The closer we are to someone emotionally, the more that the Venn diagram between them and us overlaps in our brain. You know, we have trouble distinguishing actually ourselves from our friends. It takes us longer to reply to questions. If, is this a trait that you have or a friend has? With, uh, with friends, it takes us longer to distinguish the two of us. But no, friendship is really critical. And you know, for most of friendship advice, we go to Dale Carnegie, and and most of the things Dale Carnegie said have been validated by social science. The only thing he was wrong about was was uh, that we're supposed to put ourselves in the other person's shoes, see things from their perspective, and it turns out we're terrible at this. We are really, really not good at that. But the issue with Dale Carnegie stuff is that it's really only good for the beginning. As you were saying, small talk. We've all had that situation where we're trying to, you know, make a new friend. We're getting to know somebody, and eventually the small talk kind of goes in circles, and you you kind of can't break through to that next level. And that's where the issue of vulnerability comes in. Where usually we're trying to impress people, and the truth is, 
that harms new friendships. It, it doesn't help. Them. <laughs> I used to think that, you know, you had to show such a good front, a strong front, you know, the whole fake it till you make it stuff. And you, you talk about doing something vulnerable, right? You, and you talk about saying stuff that scares you. Can you speak more to that? Because this is how to do it, right? Oh, no. I mean, that's what it comes down to is, you know, generally we're trying to impress people. We're trying to seem high status. And, and, and certainly, you know, in terms of leadership, in terms of sales, in terms of many business relationships, that, that is an aspect. But in terms of personal relationships, that creates distance. What creates closeness is that level of safety where, you know, to build trust with someone, what, what we see is that you need to trust them first. That tr- trusting, you trusting them creates the opportunity for them to trust you. You being vulnerable allows them to be vulnerable, you know, with you. And opening up, saying the stuff that scares you lets the other person know that it's safe. But when I talk about friendship in the book, I, I, I say that the difference between the little hacks and the, the Dale Carnegie stuff is that to deepen friendships, it really comes down to, in economics, what is referred to as costly signals. We, we like the Dale Carnegie stuff and the hacks because it's easy, simple, quick, you know. But it's like that doesn't, it's, it's too easy for friendships that are deep, for people to trust you, you know, then it has to be costly. It has to show that costliness. And the two costly signals that are most powerful when it comes to friendship are, number one, time, because plain and simple, if, if I give you an hour of my time every day, I can't do that for more than 24 people. End of story. That's it. Thank you for calling. Just can't because, and that says you're part of an exclusive group. When you give somebody your time, that shows that matters. Vulnerability. When I say things to you that could be used against me, that could make me look bad, you know, I'm trusting you. And when somebody trusts you with that, you know, it's safe. You know, you know that you can maybe trust them because they put themselves in a potentially difficult situation. Now, with you willing to extend that, people open up. You're opening up with them. They open up with you. So I call this the scary rule. Uh, if it's scary, say it. Now, granted, you know, incremental. Don't don't confess to any murders. Like, just take it take it small. Take it slow. You know, and look for reciprocity. You you admit something vulnerable. They do the same. This becomes the procession that allows somebody to to really get to know you. I've had a real chance to put this kind of thing into practice recently because I've moved across the country. I'm I'm a Canadian, uh, and I've moved across the country from Toronto to British Columbia. I now live on the coast, and I've made a lot of new friends, and I have had an opportunity to be very authentic um, and and reach out and and I and I I agree, Eric. I think there's this. Um, don't, don't, don't tell them all at once or they'll run away. <laughs> but, but, you know, maybe try one thing and then the next and then the next. I, I will say for listeners, you know, there are, we're going to get to toxic relationships in a second because Eric covers uh, those as well in the book. Um, but I will say to listeners, you know, make sure that if you're going to try out vulnerability and saying something that scares you or opening up just a little more than you might, um, don't do it with someone who hasn't given you every reason to trust them so far. <laughs> so, you know, take, and, and because it's true, sometimes we want, we want a relationship with someone to work out. And so make sure there's that, uh, there's that, Hey, you know, this is a neat person. Even if they didn't honor you, start with something that you could share just to almost see if this is someone you can trust and then keep building on it. Because I think, um, yeah, well, let's talk about those frenemies. I think let's talk because you talk about frenemies in the book. What's a frenemy? Because I actually didn't know. I know people talk about it, but I really didn't know what a frenemy was. Yeah, uh, no, frenemies are a big deal. This is research done by uh, by uh, uh, Julia uh, Holt-Lunsat, uh, and she basically found that the technical term is uh, ambivalent relationships. And what's funny is enemies, people we really have a negative relationship with, they actually don't cause us as much stress as frenemies do because it is that ambivalence. We're unsure. Is it going to be nice this time or terrible this time? Frenemies actually cause us more stress, they're more correlated with depression and heart disease than enemies are. Because enemies, you know what's coming. You're prepared for it. You can avoid them. Frenemies actually 
you know, we don't see them any less than we see people we really like. And generally they make up about 50% of our relationships. And, you know, so it's really difficult, but now frenemies can come in many flavors. There could be just people you don't click with, but what I really dive deep into is the issue of dealing with, with narcissists, you know, which is something that is, is quite common. And, you know, that's the, it's a really tricky thing that I think a lot of people are, are dealing with, you know, right now, uh, is that, you know, narcissism, we've, we've got some real problems here. And, and frankly, the most, the most recommended uh, thing is the thing we're least likely to do, which is just no contact. Yeah. I, I actually cover the, um, firing people in, in my book, uh, <laughs> actually in my book, it's go time. I cover I think it's in chapter because my background from behavioral science, we know that uh, if our social network is not designed to support us, it's actually designed to hurt us. Um, it's I I like to say uh, Eric's got these really cool little you know systems that he teaches throughout the book to help you put uh, get good relationships in practice. But I like to call it you can't outsmart social. So you can't, you know, you can't trick, so you can't just hang out with this person, but then decide, oh, that's not going to affect me or bring me down. It is going to bring you down. Um, and we're, we're, we're wired that way to want to be connected. Um, so yeah, very, very, I was very interested in that whole part around frenemies. And I guess I know that I, I realize this is not asking you to draw on science, but your own you know, intelligence that you've gleaned from all this research you've done. Um, why do we spend so much time with frenemies, Eric? <laughs> do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, you know, a big part of it, frankly, is that often we don't, we don't have a choice. I mean, if your coworkers, you know, aren't very nice people, you, unless you leave your job, often you don't have an option. Or if your spouse is friends with people or your neighbors, there are a lot of people we deal with who we, we, we real like opting out would, would, would require you being a hermit. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of it. But the other thing, and again, this was found in the research, is that even when people have the opportunity to, to step away from, you know, from people that they know are toxic or problematic, they often don't do it just because, you know, you feel bad. You've known this person a long time, or maybe they were there, they've helped you with something or something else, you know, or, you know, you just have associations with them. You know, it can be really hard uh, in that way. And that's, that's why in the book, I talk, I talk about, you know, the, the first line issue, which is if you can get away from, from narcissists, do it. Uh, I talk about how, you know, in terms of people who are, kind of on the fence or lower level narcissists, there, there are ways to help bring out the better person in them. And then also the issue of if you're stuck, you know, having to deal with somebody who is a full on narcissist and you can't get away from them, then we, we have to, we have to step away from trying to be, trying to make them better and focusing on boundaries and, and bargaining and actually turning it into a more transactional relationship so that it's functional, but you're not getting taken advantage of. Yeah, I, I really liked one of uh, the, the techniques for the lower level narcissists. I recall uh, you writing about showing them how, what you have in common, trying to, yeah. you know, connect, show them that you're similar. And it's like, well, if I love me, because I'm a narcissist, and you and I have that in common, <laughs> well, I guess I must love that about you, too. I thought that was really quite clever. Um, it's 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 really interesting because you know if people have full-on like narcissistic personality disorder like just get away just uh, as i say in the book it's like I, I would sooner recommend you do your own appendectomy than try and deal with a full-on narcissist because even treat actual therapeutic treatment typically has negative outcomes like they get worse uh but people who are kind of low-level narcissists just like you said like three things that can really help because it's not that they lack, it's not that they have zero empathy, it's just that they have a lower level empathy. It needs to be shifted, shifted the gear. It's a weak muscle. And you can help activate that by expressing either similarity, vulnerability, or community. 
And what's great about empathy prompts like those three is that not only can they kind of help bring out the better person, but they also act as litmus tests. If, if somebody doesn't respond to you to similarity, they don't respond to expressing vulnerability, they don't ex- expect, respond to community, then this person is probably too far gone. And, and that's, that's, that's when you need to plunge the stake into their heart. Like, but I'm kidding. But no. Just kidding. Uh, close to vampires. <laughs> Just kidding. You did not hear metaphor. that. <laughs> it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Metaphor. Um, quite, you know, yeah. Creative license. Creative. Um, okay. So let's, there's so much more and we're going to move on to, I really want to talk about uh, loneliness um, and uh, I want to talk about the love relationships, but before we move on, let's just recap. Listen, friendship, build them, focus on building them. It's good for you. It's good for them. Be, be vulnerable, but not with a narcissist, you know, (laughs) like be vulnerable with someone who's, who's showing you uh, reason to, and you can do that by saying something that scares you and having those real conversations, reducing that small talk. And there's so much more in the book, but just reducing that small talk and just getting out there and, and committing some of your time to other people, because that's going to have a whole lot of positive effect on your happiness, on your feelings of well-being. This podcast is all about feeling abundant and having friendships around us help us feel like we have an additional, as good as if we had an additional 130-something thousand. Plus, they help us live 10 years longer. I mean, you, you need to read the book just to get so much more on what you can actually do to build friendships in your life. But now, Eric, I was going to go to love next, but now I think I want to go to I think I want to go to loneliness next because, you know, what if someone's listening to this? What if you listen are listening and going, oh, my gosh, I don't have those three to six um, friends. You know, I, I don't have that. And, hey, if that's you, you're going to read the book and you're going to learn how to build those friendships. But I really was fascinated, Eric, with you, your conversation around loneliness versus solitude and that really got me. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it was something that kind of knocked me <laughs> for a loop was that uh, a Faye Alberti who teaches at the University of York is a historian or a history of loneliness and basically loneliness like kind of didn't exist before 19th, 19th century like almost as an experience. That's a slight exaggeration but not by much. If you look through like she looked through all the you know books, and basically you would you would hear the word lonely, but it would refer to you know it didn't have the negative connotation. It could refer to things being alone, but it didn't have the negative. It wasn't until actually Mary Shelley's book Frank, Frankenstein, where loneliness first became a negative. And what you can trace this to is that it was in the 19th century that we had this explosion of individualism, where you know communities. In the past, people had always been associated, you know, with there was religion, there was their nation, you know, there was their group, their tribe, their community. We had, we were much more tied in, you know, with these bonds. And that connected me with some of the other even more fascinating issue uh, issues around loneliness, which is most of the work by, by John Cacioppo, which showed that lonely people don't spend any less time with people than non-lonely people, which doesn't seem to make any sense at all. But if we think about it, everybody's felt lonely in a crowd. So if you felt lonely in a crowd, that tells you, at least sometimes, you know, loneliness really isn't about not having people around. Loneliness is a subjective feeling. Loneliness is how we feel about our relationships. You know, you can be apart from people, but if you feel like you're part of a family, part of a group, you know, part of something, then you don't have that despair of loneliness. But you can be surrounded by people, and if you don't feel connected to them, you don't feel a part of them, then you can feel just as lonely when you've got people around you. So loneliness, you know, obviously being around people is good, but what loneliness is really about is how you feel about your relationships, how you feel about your connections. You know, expanding them, yes, spending time with them, but also just deepening them so that you feel that no matter where you are, you know, there are people out there that love you and are thinking about you. 
Yeah, I found that so powerful. I grew up feeling very lonely. I actually had, so I was diagnosed with fairly severe dyslexia and ADD and something called auditory discrimination, but at in grade two. And my teacher, who didn't know how to deal with learning differences, I actually, not only did she sit me in a corner and tell me I was stupid, but she told my friends not to be friends with me. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty like, so therapy has happened. <laughs> so uh, I've gone through a lot to sort of come to terms with that. And I actually self-selected myself away from people uh, because she said to them, don't be friends with her because she will hold you back. And I'm a very sensitive person and I'm very empathetic and I didn't want to hold back anyone. So I actually grew up my entire childhood. I grew up self-selecting. So I was very, very lonely, like very lonely. So even if I was in a group, I was very sad. And then it's interesting that we talk about solitude because now I've come to love solitude. Like, you know, COVID happened. I'm very so, I mean, as you know, listeners of this podcast know I'm out, I'm social, I'm talking to people. And it's like, I don't, I was okay to be, you know, alone because I got sort of good at it. <laughs> and I'm good. You know, I, my first, when I first had a business, I was a restaurateur, a very successful one. It was very social. So I, I'm fine there, but I'm actually really comfortable to stay, sit around, read books, uh, meditate, do all that kind of thing. And there's actually a, a richness in that. And you, you even speak to the power of solitude being like a creative um, channel. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing is that, you know, prior in the 19th century, you've, you've had plenty of solitude. You know, it's like we, we've all, everybody has always had time alone because people used to live in homes with, you know, extended family. There'd be lots of people around, but it's like when traveling, excuse me, you know, there weren't trains, buses, planes. It was like most, most travel was done on foot alone, you know, through the woods. It's like people always had a balance of a lot of social time and a lot of, you know, alone time. But people didn't feel lonely because they knew that they were bonded to to a community of some sort. And solitude, what's funny is loneliness is correlated with basically like every negative health health outcome under the sun. Like I was just I, when I was doing the research, I seriously wanted to like throw the books away and go see friends because I was like terrified that I, I was going to end up dead just spending this time alone reading this stuff. Like loneliness is was it John Cacioba did research that. Basically, the, the stress that's produced by loneliness over time is the equivalent of a physical assault. Loneliness is like getting punched in the face. You know, it's terrible. But solitude, when same physical experience, we don't have people around us, but the subjective experience of being alone, but you, you don't feel unconnected from others, actually has many positive benefits. And this is actually, this is actually something I pulled from Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General of the United States. So you have the you have the biggest health official, you know, in, in the United States basically saying it's like, oh, solitude is really healthy. So it's it's really funny how the physical experience of being by yourself, the health outcomes of that can be literally one extreme or the complete opposite extreme, completely dependent upon your subjective experience. And it's all about your subjective experience, perception of your relationships. If you don't feel closer to others, you're going to feel lonely. That's really bad. If you do feel like you're a part of something, even when you're separate from those people, it is rejuvenating. It's positive. And, and I do talk about in the book how many great people, you know, Newton came up with, you know, so many of his great theories in physics when he was isolated in Wolfhard. I mean, you know, Einstein took nature walks by himself, you know, every day. Pablo Picasso talked about how without solitude, no great work is possible. You know, just everybody, you know, Kafka, Dostoevsky, all of these people praise time alone. You know, we just we just need to make sure that we, we feel connected to others. So that time alone is really beneficial. I think what you say about the subjectivity of it is I got an opportunity to witness the truth of that yesterday because I was reading this book in preparation for our chat and 
I really, I mean, I really love that. And of course, circumstance allowed me to practice it because a client who I was talking to spoke of loneliness and spoke of being alone and spoke of having a negative reaction to that. And, and they were sharing a a story about uh, a formative time for them. And they shared the story of a formative time in the sort of, in this loneliness. And I said, well, was it loneliness or was it solitude? And then I described, I mentioned your book, and then I mentioned the, the two differences. And right away, she sort of clued in that it was solitude and instantly had a more fond relationship with those former experiences. It was just perfect. I mean, this this book is great. People, you got to read this book. It's so important. What do you, what are, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I just put it into practice right there. No, well, I think, I, I think there is that, I think there is that issue. There's that stigma around loneliness. I think it's something that generally pre pandemic, I don't think get, gets discussed enough. You know, I was looking at a lot of the, the research and stuff on, you know, online and, you know, Almost all of it was directed at the elderly, which certainly the elderly experienced loneliness and it's great to help them. But to me, there was also, I raised an eyebrow because it's like nobody else is experiencing loneliness. And I, I think it's the issue of there's a stigma around it. I think people feel bad. They feel less than, you know, they feel lower status if they acknowledge loneliness. And I think the pandemic has, has allowed people to kind of do that and, and so I can imagine you know your client me speculating your client may have been experiencing solitude but may have had that stigma in their head where oh this is bad oh I'm not supposed to be alone oh we're all supposed to be extra and energetic and super connected and, and if people won't think well of me if you know if, if I'm if I'm alone and not realizing that no you know it can be you know, we all need time to read extrovert, introvert, whatever. We all need time to recharge. We all need, you know, time for that. And it's, and it's okay. And it's, and it's not shameful. And like I said, it's, it's terrible that a pandemic had to bring it about, but it's great that now it's acceptable, that much more acceptable for people to say, wow, you know, I felt pretty, pretty lonely. And most people can, can relate. Yeah. I think, I think this is really something to for I guess you listeners to think about in your own world there I can't imagine very many of us have uh, not been lonely over the past few years as even for those of us who are good at being alone or used to it uh, it's it's been extreme in the past few years but that we can first of all ask ourselves, hey, wait a second, is this nurturing time that I'm spending with myself? Perhaps that is, in fact, solitude, something to think about. Maybe it's the the reframe. And again, it's just, it's, it's pointing to the importance of developing real relationships. And just the importance of this book that you've written, you know, thank you so much for writing this book. I I know I'm going to still talk to you about love very quickly, but I just want to stop and say thank you for writing this book because I used to be a communications trainer and I've, so I have, you know, formal training and communication stuff, but a lot of it is how do we argue? Or a lot of it is, you know, how do we argue? How do we make up? And then, of course, there's how do we have marital, uh, you know, how do we have better marital conversations? And then, of course, there's the Dale Carnegie category of things, which I always did feel were transactional. I mean, there's some great ideas in there, but if you don't apply them with love in your heart, then they'll really fall flat. I used to do leadership training in organizations. And before I would teach anyone the tools, I would actually get them to come from the right place because I'm like, you use these tools from a creepy place. Mm, It's just not good, you know, because they are so powerful. But what, what Eric's done is written a book about how to build genuine relationships. And I, and I think there's, that's going to be a nice little segue into his very controversial section on love. Wow. Eric, uh, there's, there's so much 
there is such a, there's a huge, okay, folks, when you read this, there is a huge warning at the beginning of his section on love. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about what got you, did, did your publishers make you write that warning? Did your mom make you write it? Who made you write that? No, I, I, I did because I knew a lot of people were, were gonna go into it. And I, I, you know, when I wrote my first book, it got success. People have opinions on success, but it doesn't go that deep. It doesn't, most people are not that invested in it. On the other hand, people have some personal opinions on love, personal views on love, and they have some things they want to be true, whether they are or not. And I knew that, I knew I was delivering a hopeful message in the end, but I knew that we're going to have to discuss some sticky things there that we usually don't. And I, I basically put a caveat at the beginning of the chapter to say, you know, hey, you know, Frodo, we're going to get you back to the Shire, but like, it's going to be a big adventure beforehand, you know, like, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff, you know, it's like love, we all know love involves good and bad, you know, but we have to go through some of the, the, some of the tough stuff, some of the less pleasant stuff to, to get to the more, more hallmark, sappy, goodness kind of stuff. Okay. Hopefully, listeners, Eric and I get along after I say this. Um, <laughs> I, the rest of the book, I was like, yes. And uh, keeping in mind, I've studied a lot of this stuff. Keeping in mind, it's been a part of my work. I have been like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Oh, that's, ooh, new perspective. I like it. Eric's also like this incredible storyteller. So if you like incredible stories, yeah, who doesn't? Of course you do. Then you're going to love the story the storytelling um, and the incredible and rich stories that he tells. But when it got to the love uh, section, and what I'm maybe taking issue with is that you got me all the way back to Utopia. Because I do think I have, at least for now, at least for now, I have forever changed my thinking around love. So I don't know that you got me all the way back to you, like, la, 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 the Shire. Um, I think I'm still, I think I'm still in the war zone. <laughs> I think I still, I'm still on the quest. I, I, we don't want to give this away, but we can talk. Why don't we talk a little bit about, or what, what do you share? Why don't you tell me what, what should we be sharing about this part of the book? I mean, because whatever you think would be most helpful to your audience. I, I think it's really helpful. I, I highly recommend you read. I have never, ever in all of my research, and I've researched a lot of things, come across the perspectives that you shared, and I think they're important. And I actually think that there should be a new world order where we all understand this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would change everything. And and possibly lead more people to to the positive outcomes. I, I think we've really seen why there are so many failed relationships. But let's talk, let's, I think what would be most helpful is to say, okay, lovebirds, those of you seeking love, those of you seeking to improve love, um, let's talk about, I really liked, you shared some research, what was that research? You, you shared some research about if, if they don't fight it's like a goner. So there's this thing. You think that not inviting relationships are what you're aspiring to, but that's not it at all. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. John Gottman, who is like the leading researcher on, on marriage and love. Like, I mean, guy's done amazing research. I'm getting a full back tattoo of John Gottman's face. Like he's just, he's, he's the greatest. He's amazing. And like, basically what he found is first and foremost, 69% of, uh, of marital, real marital issues never get resolved. Like you're going to keep arguing about them forever. Like that sounds again, warning uh, sounds very depressing at first, but that's, that's, that's actually a good sign. Like this is true for happy couples. It's true for unhappy couples. 69% of the serious issues never get resolved, but people can be very happy like that. The issue is that it's not about always resolving the conflict. What keeps marriages together and happy is how you regulate the conflict is, you know, that the way that you handle it is more important than solving it, putting it to bed, being done with it. And the issue is if you're not communicating, 
well, then there's no way to deal with it, to work around it, to come to better understand the perspective of your partner and to honor their values and your values. And we think that, oh, geez, you know, arguing is really bad. And it can be, but, you know, serious arguing only leads to divorce 40% of the time. The rest of the time, what leads to divorce is actually people stop arguing. You argue when you care. You argue when the other person and these issues matter. When you give up and you don't care anymore, they don't care anymore, you start living separate lives. And that's what usually precedes divorce, is people just, there's no point, they stop trying, they live separate lives, and eventually they move on. So the issue is, John Gottman puts it in a pretty funny way. You know, he says, like, if you've been in a long-term relationship for a while now, and you have not had a single serious argument, please do that immediately. You know, it's like you need to communicate because not communicating can definitely kill, can definitely kill things, can definitely cause problems. Whereas communication, as long as you're respectful, as long as you're compassionate, you know, that, and as long as you regulate the conflict, that allows you to, to handle it versus just, just letting it go unchecked. Okay. So this communication piece is so important. And I did, I did really like that, that spot in the book where you shared, you know, Hey, if you haven't had an argument, quick, have one. And that, that I have a a good friend who is a, a matchmaker in DC and she writes that about that in her book as well. She's like, you don't know who you're dealing with until you've had an argument. And I, I did like the piece about, around keeping secrets talked about, you know, that's really, um, a bad sign. And, and that's for you listener. That's not about, are they keeping secrets, right? It's like, are you keeping secrets or have you had something on your mind that you haven't said? I'm guilty. I'm guilty in former relationships of, you know, swallowing what I had to say because I thought that saying it would be harsh, but the research is really showing that's not the right thing to do. No, it's like the keeping secrets that just tends to snowball where you don't want to bring it up. You don't bring it up. And then you stop having a conversation with the other person and you start having a conversation with yourself where, oh, they're doing this. That must mean terrible thing X. And maybe it has nothing to do with X, but you're not asking them. You're asking yourself. You know, it's 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 amazing how much communication works better when there's actually another person involved. Uh, but like it's the issue, like one of the things Gottman found his one of his four horsemen, the four things that typically that lead to divorce over 80 percent of the time, you know, complaining is not one of them. Criticism is one. of them. You know, and the distinction is complaining actually can often be a net positive for a relationship simply because you're raising issues. It can be solved. You can you can move on, you know, or at least the other person is aware. Criticism is when you raise an issue, but you add a personal element to it. You know, it's one thing to say complaining is, you know, is you didn't take out the trash. Criticism is you don't take out the trash because you're a horrible person. You know, that's when you give them both barrels. It's like that's not going to go over very well. And it's so the issue is you can raise issues. That's often a positive thing. You know, if you're going to put a a really negative spin on it and attack the other person's character, that's not going to go well. And the other really big point, a really actionable point that I think people can put to use immediately uh, is one of the most robust findings that Gottman had was the issue of harsh startup, which is that if you're raising a issue that might turn into a fight, you know, basically in Gottman's studies, he could listen to the first three minutes of an argument and tell you how it was going to end. In other words, if it starts harsh, it's going to end harsh. And that, and the, the first three minutes of a conversation weren't just predictive of the end of the conversation. They were also predictive of divorce. Just raising issues in a more polite, friendly, compassionate, neutral way made such a difference versus raising the exact same issue in a very aggressive, confrontational way. So just reducing harsh startup can can that can have an immediate huge effect, you know, on relationships. And if you just take a deep breath, it's, it's not that hard to do. It, 
you know, this is it's so similar. I was reading that, and it's very similar to the work I did in organizations, working and training leaders and managers on how to bring things up with their team members and their employees. And it was the same thing. It's like you don't you don't start with um, you know you. I want I this is this is for reals for reals. I once had a boss. He was my boss. He didn't say it to me, but he said it to someone else. I heard him hollering outside to this person and screaming, oh my God, you are useless. You are absolutely useless. I could train a monkey to do what you're doing better than you're doing it. And I was just in a state of shock. And I actually went and spoke. I was ready to lose my job. I went and I spoke to this person and I said, there is no world where you can say that to someone and have it be okay. And I just raked him over the coals. And amazingly, he didn't fire me. <laughs> and he's known for, because he knew, he knew that <laughs> that was not okay. But I, I went on to train uh, managers and organizations. And it was the same thing. Just stop. And, and the little thing that we would do there, and I would imagine it would work in, in relationships as well, is just say, you know, what the outcome, hey, I want to have an amazing evening with you. But first, I want to talk about the trash all over the floor that you said you were going to take, you know, but to talk about the outcome that you're looking for and to state it right up front is something that at least in a professional context works really well. Um, or, you know, hey, I just want to, you know, align ourselves on this, you know, just saying something so they know right off the, the bat, hey, the goal is let's come together. I've really, I learned so much from that from the love side. There are things, listeners, I don't want to give away because I really do think you need to see, I, I really do think you need to see the case that Eric makes for something. Um, and if I, we just talk about it quickly on the podcast, I, I worry that it won't have the context and that we'll both start getting nasty messages. <laughs> <laughs> all caps in our email, uh, because he, he has us look at, take a hard look at love and ask ourselves, what are we really seeking from this and what is really possible and what is it really going to take? Um, you know, this is a thinking vitamins podcast. So there was, we want some actions that you can take right away to increase your abundance in this case in relationships. And there was something that you can do um, with your partner, and I would imagine, or your your loved one, or even a friend to keep uh, keep spice alive. But in, in the case of love, what is that? You talk about, um, you know, activities. What are, What's that all about? So basically, they did some research and they, they had uh, couples go on pleasant dates and they had couples go on exciting dates and exciting really, really, really warm. And it, I mean, it makes sense. You know, usually early on in a relationship, you're going out on dates, you're doing fun things and love blossoms. And, you know, but the thing is we think, oh, that's just the beginning of a relationship. And it's like, no, doing those exciting things, getting out and doing fun stuff really contributed to that. You know, and that can happen anytime because of a psychological principle called emotional contagion. Basically, whatever environment we're in has an effect on us emotionally. And we attribute that Pavlov style with the people that are around us. You know, so if you're going out to concerts, if you're going horseback riding, if you're going on roller coasters, you know, this is exciting, fun stuff. And you associate that with whoever you're with. So it allows you to be a little lazy. You know, you can kind of like shift the burden onto the environment. That's that's kind of fun. But we forget about that. We get lazy. We just sit around the house. We watch Netflix. We eat pizza. It gets boring. And guess what? We start to think our partner's boring. And, you know, it's love needs a defibrillator. It's like we need to kind of do some of those things we did in the beginning because that really makes a difference. And... You know, it's like a, a lot of people, we, we, we forget that and we forget that that's part of the problem. I get into the issue of kind of the, you know, the, the fairy tale relationship and, you know, fairy tales are nice. The only problem is fairy tales are passive. Fairy tales are something that happened to you. And especially as I, I get into in the book, it's like, especially in today's relationship, you, you can't sit around, you know, waiting for the, the universe to deliver happiness via Amazon Prime. You know, it's like you, you need to be proactive about it. So 
in terms of a relationship, you need to do things to keep it alive. And if those things are exciting, it works all the better. I absolutely loved that. And that was another one of those, you read it and you're like, how did I not already know this? <laughs> how did this make so much sense? Listen, Eric, I know we need to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much. I do have one question before we yes. sign off um, personally for you. What has been the greatest change in your life since writing or researching and, and writing this book? I mean, for me, uh, you know, I have not been the most vulnerable guy. <laughs> and, um, you know, and with friends, you know, I have some very close friends that I open up with. But now I make a concerted effort to open up a little bit and to try and be, you know, a little less impressive, a little less of a cool, tough guy. And I try a little bit more to, to, to be honest about difficulties, to, to be honest about, you know, the issues that I'm dealing with. And what I find is that, again, it does work, you know, in the sense of, you know, people feel like they can talk about their problems to you. And that's how you get three-dimensional relationships, is when you're three-dimensional with people, when you're not some cardboard cutout attempting to be, to be perfect. You know, when you're showing them the, you know, the, the, the rough unfinished parts, you know, that's when people know that it's okay to have their own rough unfinished parts. And you get to see the whole person, they get to see the whole person. And, you know, it's just, it's a lot more fulfilling. Scary, but that's what's worked for me. That's why I'm sure you're you're thrilled that you wrote it. Thank you so much for coming, listeners. This is a really important book. It's we need to turn loneliness into connectedness. Uh, we can enjoy time alone, but that's solitude. And we can build stronger, better relationships. What's in this book will absolutely change your life. You'll change your life. You'll change your loved ones' lives and your friends' lives by reading it and sharing it. And Eric, thank you for coming and talking to me about this today. Thank you. It's really been great. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Thinking Vitamins podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, comment, follow, and come to thinkingvitamins.com where you can sign up to get our newsletter and additional free training. Thinking Vitamins with Jill McKay. Just after we